Welcome back to Sister Brunch with me, Fanchon Cox. And me, Anya Adams. The fabulous Anya Adams. <laughs> now, what is this? Where are we? What are we doing here? Sister Brunch. This is Sister Brunch, and it's a podcast about Black women and non-binary folks striving and thriving in media, entertainment, and the arts. And we cannot wait to share more stories with you over the next few weeks. Today's guest is a cinematographer and camera operator. It's the fabulous Michelle Crenshaw. And yes. just a little history about Michelle. She has worked on films such as the iconic The Water Watermelon Woman, and also the iconic Home Alone. Amazing, two different, <laughs> very different movies. Um, raised in Detroit, she graduated from Columbia College Chicago, where she took a film class and was immediately hooked. With over 30 years, 30 years Go in the ahead. industry, okay, she has over 60 IMDb credits. That's the Internet Movie Database, folks, for those of you that don't know. 60, over 60. And most recently, she's worked as the camera operator for Netflix's Hannah Gatsby Douglas and CBS's Bob Hart's Abishola. I want to talk to you about that later. And the other thing we want to talk about, Michelle, is that she was appointed to the City of Los Angeles' Workforce Development Board in 2019. She's an adjunct faculty member at USC's Cinematic Arts Program and was recently re-elected to the National Executive Board of the International Cinematographers Guild, IATSE, Local 600. So Michelle, she don't slow down, but she's stopping by Sister Brunch to holla with us. Hang out with us. Yes, Michelle, we are so incredibly honored and proud to have you on this show. Thank yes. you for being here. Thank you for asking. Yeah. We have so many questions, especially because the genres that you've worked in, the variety of storytelling, the iconic, as Anya said, the iconic stories. We can't wait to hear and dig in more on those. But we'd love to start off by asking you a little bit about your journey, because we want to inspire our listeners around how to get started. So take us back as far as you would like to go and let us know how you got Take us back past those 60 IMDb credits. Yes, <laughs> that's one. That first IMDb credit. Yeah, tell <laughs> yeah. us about it. How'd you get it? How'd you get there? Well, it's funny because I never knew about IMDb. It came out, what, like in the early 90s or something? And yeah. it was actually another, another friend of mine uh, who was trying to do a lot of producing work She's the one that told me about it. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an IMDb. And it was like, oh, my gosh, look at this. Wow. Okay. Anyway, um, and for the longest, you know, I didn't even bother about it because a lot of the producers uh, put that information on. Now, if you want to, you can try to, you know, dig in deeper. To be honest with you, I could probably put on about 30 more credits that are not there. But, Damn. you know. You know what uh -huh. it is? I'm a sister. I'm a black woman. And a lot okay. of people don't need to know how much you do. Because then they bug oh. you. So I kind of like try to be on the download sometimes because I'm wow. always out there making my moves. I love it. That's an inspiration That's right there. When, when you don't yeah. want to be found, you know you made it, right? Like the rest of us out here, please give us a job. Michelle's like, don't That's call me. No, no, no. You know, part of that is that I always say, especially to African-American, black and brown women, 
If I see them out here in the field, especially in a technical capacity, I say, listen, give me a call if you have any thoughts or questions. If I can answer, I'll be happy to, or I'll lead you somewhere else where someone can answer your question. But it's amazing how people don't really reach out Mm. as much as they should, you know, for whatever reasons. But anyway, enough of that. Let me go back into my childhood. First of all, I'm like, you shouldn't have said that because I'll be at your door tomorrow. No, no, no. You don't need to knock on my door. You can email. You can email or call me. I didn't say you could come to my house. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But but seriously, where do you live? No, I'm just kidding. Tell us about your childhood, Michelle. Yes. One thing I can say is uh, I grew up in uh, the Midwest, Detroit, Michigan, to be exact, Mm. was very much raised in a labor household, very much a working class family. My father was, Mm -hmm. at the time, he was an educational director of the Rouge plant, Local 600, because Detroit is still the motor capital of the world, Mm -hmm. least as far as business is concerned. And my mother was a secretary, and that's how they met, based on uh, second marriage out popped me. So I like to tell people that I was a love child. Uh, I have older uh, brothers. Yeah. And, I was. I have older brothers and sisters, uh, a lot older. So I was. Uh, I had a niece at the age of four. So I have actually wow. like first generation nieces and nephews that we might be like four years apart in age. So they're like my Mm. brothers and sisters Mm. at this point, Mm. which is a beautiful thing. But I was always that kind of like nomadic child that used to wander around to see what was on the other side of the road. (laughs) And I was also very involved in the arts. And somewhere around 16, I picked up my first still camera. And I, for some reason, liked the immediacy of taking photographs in observation of just people and things and abstractions, whatever that was. So from there, you know, after I graduated from high school, I wasn't too sure what my education, I wasn't sure uh, what I wanted to do. And it's, it's just amazing how the universe will just guide you from one thing to the next. And I saw this ad in the photography magazine about Ray Vogue School of Design. It was in Chicago. And it was like a two-year program for large format photography. And I started dabbing into four by five and eight by 10, but not enough. So I said, oh, let me go here. So I went to Chicago. And of course, being from Detroit, which was a decent city at the time, then coming to Chicago was like, wow. Okay, you know, right in the heart of Michigan Avenue and where everything was Uh happening. So I took a couple classes in, you know, dark room and developing. And for some reason, I was thinking more at the time commercial photography. Now we're talking about in the early 80s. So if you think seeing someone like me now is odd, in the 80s, (laughs) it was like non existent. (laughs) You know, but I was so naive because I always was integrated, went to Catholic high schools, ended up graduating from Cass Tech High, was a a school of Mm. integration. So being around white people didn't scare me. I didn't care. I was just doing my thing, you know. And so here I am in the early 80s and I wasn't quite 
satisfied with the school because they weren't giving me enough for me to learn on my own. They were telling me things, but they weren't letting me discover. And someone told me about Columbia College. They have a huge photo department and they had a film department. And so I decided to take one class and, uh, you know, filmmaking 101, when, which you had nothing but Bolexes and started to learn about wow. not only taking images, but story structure. And yes. I was hooked. By the way, I went to, to college later in life. So I've always been a working woman. I've been working since I was 17 years old, but I decided to go to college later, later in life. So here I was 21. And then I knew this is what I want to do. I can use the elements wow. of art. I can use the elements of composition. I can use the elements of shadow, light, movement, yeah. telling a story. I was hooked. And I just lived and breathed there for about three years, working in the film cage, shooting a lot of student projects, still being mm -hmm. very naive at the time as far as the real world. You know, you have your college world, which is, you know, very utilitarian right. and very structured yeah. and aspirational. And you get into yeah. your little cliques. You know, mm -hmm. and it was like mm -hmm. this one guy, he wanted to be a director. I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer. So we used to work on each other's projects all the time. And then after that, it's like, I was a, also an intern at the school. So I was a TA, mm -hmm. teacher's assistant, very technical, wasn't as scared of the equipment. One thing led to wow. another. Then I graduated and then it was like, okay, now what I'm going to do. And at the time, it was more like in the mid 80s, there were two filmmakers that really influenced me just to be in this world of cinema. It was Spike Lee and wow. Usain Palsy because Spike Lee, oh, yes. uh, it was just during that time when She's Gotta Have It and then also mm -hmm. Bed-Stuy Barbershop from NYU. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw Sugarcane Alley, which is Usain mm. Palsy's, mm -hmm debut mm -hmm. film it was like yeah okay black people can make films this is sister brunch with phantom Cox and anya adams stay tuned for more of our conversation with the inspiring and powerful and amazing guest cinematographer and camera operator michelle crenshaw And we are back. Check out more of this conversation on Thriving Behind the Scenes with Michelle Crenshaw. What was your first big break? Like Watermelon Woman, I'm assuming, or was there something before that that really propelled you and started you having the relationships that would kind of lead to everything you've done since then? Well, it was a combination of things, because even when I was in film school about ready to leave, there was a social group of women that, you know, we would shoot and work on each, each other's projects. Uh, this guy named Floyd Webb, he started this film festival called Blacklight Film Festival wow. back in the day. And then nice. I was also part of a film festival organization in Chicago called Women in Directors Chair. And at that time, it was like the first international film festival for women 
you know, directors or producers or people who were instrumental in um, making the project. So that were, you know, it was very yeah. exciting because it was very collaborative, wow. more of a community. Now, you didn't necessarily make a lot of money, but, you know, still you were out there, you know, doing your stories. And um, so there was a huge network from there. And then one of my instructors, his uh, Dave Morenz, I was his TA. And at the time, Chicago was starting to boom as far as filmmaking. That's oh, where okay. Andy Davis and John Hughes and all these features, when they started leaving New York or California, for whatever reasons, they were coming into Chicago. I miss the Blues Brothers days, but I came oh. after that. So my, my instructor, because he knew I was technically inclined, and I was the it girl. It was quite clear I had it, what it took wow. to manage you know, cameras and lenses and filters and batteries and whatnot. So yeah. um, the union was opening up in Chicago. Basically, they needed black, brown and ethnic minorities and women because there weren't any. Yeah. Usually when I tell my students and when I talk about my history, you have to think about history of America. I mean, right now we have the DEI going on in this country. Well, back in the 80s, they were still talking about the same thing. So they would let a few yep. people in. And right. once those few right. people in, that's when the door closes. But um, mm, yeah, but like mom says, you know, preparation and, and opportunity meet, that's what luck is all about. So I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I developed enough skills where people were interested in allowing me in because, you know, wow. filmmaking industry is still a, a big industry of nepotism, which I have nothing against nepotism oh. at all, but you have to really want it and sacrifice network and know who that's going to embrace you for who you are as yeah. an individual and allow you to grow. Mm -hmm. Too often how it happens in Hollywood is somebody who has never done anything, somebody meaning a white male, right? Who has done very little or has very little experience, didn't go to school. And because of nepotism, they get hired versus someone like you, where you talk about it being luck in the sense of that timing and the zeitgeist. But at the same time, you were prepared and you had something special. This is different, you know, even <laughs> once you started to have those relationships. Yes, yes. Well, can you tell us a little bit about The Watermelon Woman? Because I feel like this, this movie has had kind of a resurgence in the last years. You know, it's become this kind of iconic film that people refer to. But like, I know when you made it, it probably was very hard. Well, making the film wasn't so hard because it was that grassroots indie, mm -hmm. indie way of making films. Now, how mm -hmm. I met Cheryl Dunier is because of my activism and working on a women in directors chair, because I was also at oh, one wow. point, I became a vice president working with Nalani McClendon 
which she was president at the time of Women in Directors Chair. And so that's how I met Cheryl, because we had one of her experimental films in the film festival. And she contacted me somewhere in the early 90s saying, girl, when she got her NEA money, that she wanted to mm-hmm. shoot this film. I thought, oh, sure, okay. Now, it took several years oh. from that till we actually shot. But by then, I was working all the time as a camera assistant, so I could afford mm. to go to Philly and hang out for a month or so right. and help her do Watermelon Woman. <laughs> you know, it was exciting. It was fun. Uh, I had a small crew, which was good. Uh, but yeah, 20 years later, it just kind of resurged. It was ahead of its time. That's what it was. Yeah, you know, yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, socially you know, the message that I was trying to deal with. Uh, So it's just now, it's just caught up. Yeah, You know, Cheryl Denier, she's great at promoting herself, you know. See, I'm the type of person, especially as a cinematographer, you know, I don't need to be out in front. You know, I'm the VP. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that's Mm going to support Mm -hmm. and be in the background, making sure things are moving. I think that's how a lot of director of photographies and photographers and cinematographers Mm -hmm. are, you know, we're not the director. We're facilitating Mm -hmm. with the director to carry on a vision, to tell a story. And it doesn't matter what genre it is, whether it's a documentary, a music video, uh, you know, television, you know, features, but you're there to help facilitate with that in mind using the tools and the palette of your gear and your light and direction, you know, composition, framing. This is just such a beautiful conversation. I just stop and say that this is, I feel blessed right now. This is beautiful. And it's so true, right? That DPs, a lot of crew kind of, they don't need to be out in front or, or visible, but you, Michelle, are a gem. The fact that still there are so few Black women DPs still, we need to shout your name from the rooftops because- we need Black women and Black girls to know that this is something they can do. I mean, not to toot our own horn, but we are pushing you out front in this yeah. podcast. So whether you give us your home address or not, people going to Yeah, we're going to be in touch. <laughs> well, that's good. And, and, and let me tell you something. This is how it really came down. Let's go back to Watermelon Woman. So I've known Cheryl Denier, you know, ever since then. And she's had her struggles. Thanks to Ava DuVernay, mm-hmm. she's opened up the door for literally 99% of the black female directors that are out here doing stuff now, Mm -hmm. especially for television as well as features, you know, my shout out to Ava DuVernay, which I haven't had the opportunity to work with her yet, maybe someday. Uh, But with Mm -hmm. Cheryl Denier, we've maintained a friendship and there were some other things that she wanted me to do, but I got to the point in my career that I couldn't work for free. Because my mm-hmm. time is valuable. I'm an older woman. Yes. I have life. Mm-hmm. I have family. And my time commitment to myself has changed, right? Yeah, so mm-hmm. at one point, I contacted Cheryl and I said, you know, girl, especially it happened during the pandemic. I said, you know, I'm ready to slay here. Okay. I'm tired of being quiet. 
I work okay. with a lot of people. I know as much, if not more, because I've also yep. went up the ranks working in camera. So I started as an intern. Mm. I was a loader. Yes. Then I became a second assistant. Then I became a focus puller. Then I became an operator. That's when you met me, Anya. I was an operator and I'm yeah. still an operator, but believe me, my whole career, I wanted to be a cinematographer. But in the mid-80s, oh. there were barely any women let known someone. Yes. And I'm a real sister. I'm a black woman with natural hair. Yes. They weren't ready for me. That's yes, all it is. is. White yeah. men do have a hard time listening to women, period. Let known a sister. But yep. neither here nor there. So I told Cheryl Denier I was ready to slay. And out of the blue, like within a week or two, she calls, girl, get ready. Just like that. I go, what are you talking about? Yes. <laughs> anyway, that's what led me to doing uh, four episodes of Delilah. And because I did four episodes of Delilah, the union contacted me and said, okay, are you going to re-rate to DP or are you going to stay an operator? Well, needless to say, I re-rated to DP. So, yeah, you all call me now. Yes. Hi, it's Anya, and you're listening to Sister Brunch. We'll be right back. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Sister Brunch, Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast, and Facebook at Facebook.com backslash Sister Brunch Podcast. research shows that you actually went back to your hometown to work as an artist in residence. And was that from your DP work? That's amazing. That was because of my relationship. Another sister, it, um, Juanita Anderson, she's a professor at Wayne State University that teaches media arts. And she's also a producer. She's the one that got me the artist in residency to come back to Michigan, which was great. Um, and wow. we're currently working on a documentary called the Hastings Street Blues Project. And it's really the history of blues before Motown and Black Bottom in oh, Detroit. Wow. That's a documentary, that's a long-term wow. thing. But yes. that's why I was there because I'm also a show, face it, I'm a social activist too. I'm not just a filmmaker, yes. you know, yes. I'm also a radical, an activist, an artist. Yes. I'm kind of all that. We, we always like to ask a question and if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to share it, but especially because you talked about one, not being, not working for free anymore, which is important mm -hmm. for us to draw that line. And then two, going from operator to DP. Are you comfortable talking about salary ranges or just for our listeners to know what might they be able to make if they were to work as a cinematographer or any of those jobs that you've described moving up to that? Well, when you work in the union, you know, there's set prices, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which you can go online and find out what the rates are for specific classifications. When you work non-union, it's negotiable and it becomes what you're right. comfortable with and if you get hired to do the job. Production assistance off the cuff, 
used to be what 125 150 i don't know what it is now yeah um mm-hmm. the same thing for assistance it could be around 200 you know maybe 250 i'm thinking in terms of non-union when you work non-union you're just paying an hour, hourly rate whatever you negotiate for that mm-hmm. um union jobs is you know eight hours time and a half after eight you know double time either 12 or 14, your hourly rates can be anywhere from 20 something to a hundred and something. Let's just say the rates are all over the place. So we can't get that specific. Okay. And it is negotiable, Uh, especially non-union is negotiable depending on what it is because you're are, you're paying for service. I mean, we, we all participate in giving our service, but also we have years behind that service that's going to help yes. propel whatever the project is. So don't mm-hmm. be so intimidated by working with someone that has a lot of experience because we're all there to support you and your project. Yes. Right. You know, we're right, not right, trying right. to sell you anything. We're just there to support and might have easier ways to uh, facilitate something that you might have to take a while to figure out as someone who's a technical person. Do you have any advice for young people of color coming up in this industry in terms of how to navigate with people that as we move through this, there are people that have less experience than you and also more experience, but just any tips and tricks or thoughts about what it's like to work, you know, especially below the line where you're working with a lot of male energy a lot of times. Is there any, do you have any thoughts or words of wisdom there? I guess the bottom line is whatever you're offering to a project, regardless of whether you're in hair, makeup, wardrobe, you know, camera, assistant director, used to be, I know you're directing now. Um, (laughs) Just try to be as good as you can with that aspect because you're not there to do anything else okay you're there to provide a service for that specific thing and try to be very good and efficient at it and other people notice i got 95 percent of my work and my jobs have always been through word of mouth even if they ask for my resume 99 percent of the time I knew I had the job before they asked for it because that became a formality, maybe for legal reasons. So it's what you do in the moment of the position you're in that will lead you to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And as a camera person, and this is one thing I'm working with now with a few young ladies because I know a lot of people that want to shoot. Everyone wants to be a cinematographer, but they don't know the Hmm. basic foundations of what it takes to get to a place where you can really grow and start asking for, you know, decent money to achieve whatever you're trying to achieve. So they start doing a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff, but not mastering. I guess I'm yeah. kind of old school mm. because I grew up in the arts and I used to look at Renaissance paintings and things mm. and saw how light was hitting 
something that even if it was painted um, in the direction of shadows. And I really mm. wanted to master the art of cinematography. So okay. I enjoyed yeah. assisting with some of the most well-known male director of photographers out here. And I watched what they did, how they worked the set, how they worked yeah. with the crew, you know, how the diplomacy of working with other people that you might only work with for a short amount of time and you won't see them again for months, you know, mm -hmm. or if you ever see them again, just focus. I know there's people who are assisting in one job, they're operating on another, they're doing it, but you're not really mastering the craft. And that mm -hmm. makes the difference of survival. That's why I've yeah. been in it for 30 something years. And to be oh, honest with yeah. you, at this point, me trying to do something else is literally impossible because this is all I know. I know the language, you know I know well. the culture. And yeah. unfortunately, because of pandemic, my biggest fear, and Anya, you can probably uh, say something about this. Because of the pandemic, it's isolating people more because you won't be able to do the set visits. I won't be able to bring people on necessarily just to observe unless yes. they have another foot in the door that allows them in yes. because with the COVID and the testing, it's actually going to keep more people out. I hate to say it. No, you're right. Everything is closed down. It's just so much tighter and it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. The institutions are out there, the, you know, with the streaming platforms, with YouTube, with Instagram, you can get together yeah. with your friends and start telling. I mean, Issa Rae. Issa Rae is the example. Yes. Look what she yes. did. Yeah. You know, and now YouTube she's like the queen of HBO. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's really no excuse other than you're not putting in the work. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I love it. Are there ways that our listeners can support you, Michelle? Because we love you. Yeah, how can we support you? You can support me. For all you women out here, I'm not sure like where you're at in your stage of growth and media making. Just you can support me by you doing the work and you representing and putting the stories out there. Representation does matter and we need yeah. to start telling our own stories and taking control yes. of our own images. That's what you can do for me. And eventually, if you don't see me, you're going to see one of my protégés because there are people <laughs> that I have trained. <laughs> so. Oh, love it. Love it. That is such a beautiful way to end this, Michelle. Thank you. We're so glad you came on. Thank you for listening to Sister Brunch with me, Anya Adams, and the fabulous Fanchon Cox. That was our conversation with Michelle Crenshaw. Visit sisterbrunch.com to find out more about Michelle and how to support her upcoming projects. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast, and we're also on Twitter if you prefer over there at Sister Brunch, and also if you are one of the uh, perhaps older of our listeners, you might still be on Facebook. We're at facebook.com/slash Sister Brunch Podcast. 
If you've got questions for us for our Ask Sister Brunch segment, visit sisterbrunch.com, fill out our question form. It's very easy. You can ask anything you want and we might just read it on the air. Also be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletters. You're gonna get job tips, you're gonna get viewing recommendations and so much more. And do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. Your support is so important to us and we appreciate you all. Our senior producer is Sonata Lee Narcisse. Our show producer is Brittany Turner. Our executive producer is Cristobal and Sia Boade. We'd like to acknowledge the fact that the land we record our podcast on is the original land of the Tongva people for those of us who live in Los Angeles. Can't wait to see you next time. Take care, y'all.